The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. Um, today we are going to be talking about <laughs> what? I was just laughing because it just like we were just talking before about how we don't even know what's going on this week. Everything's just all crazy and chaotic and all over the place. Just made yeah, because I could tell in that intro bit you were like, oh, <laughs> which you're not ever usually like that. I don't know, I don't know what's going on with us. <laughs> yeah, we're just saying. I'm like so tired. I feel like. This has been like the craziest week at work and my brain just feels like there's no brain in my head at all. It took me so long to set up to record the podcast and then even just doing the intro it took me like twice to do it because I was like, wait, I don't even know what to say. Like, I feel like an absolute zombie, but we're going to we're going to get through it. It's going to be a good episode. <laughs> yeah, this is one. Yeah, one that we've been asked for a lot and I've always kind of held off on doing it, but it's actually such an interesting case. So I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Maura Murray today. Um, since it's an older case, we figured um, at the start, instead of doing our, our usual chat, we could talk a little bit about some cases. Um, Olivia did a poll on our Instagram and was asking what case kind of like got you guys into true crime. Yeah, we had so, so I asked, because I said that, I think I don't know if I've said it before too, but the case that kind of got me into true crime was the disappearance of Rachel Cook in Texas in 2002. She's still missing, but back then that was kind of um, one of the first true crime cases that I can remember. Her dad started a blog, you know, like, you know what the internet was like then? They had like GeoCities pages and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it was a very basic blog, but he updated that every day about the search for Rachel and I would log on every single day and read about what was happening. Um, and so that's where I kind of got interested in true crime. She's never been found as of 2023. Her dad actually passed away without ever knowing what happened to her. There's been a lot of theories and a lot of kind of false confessions over the years. So I actually had someone message the Instagram and say that they knew her. I think they went to school with her or something like that. So um, it's still kind of on people's minds, but it is one that's unsolved. But that was kind of how I got into it. And so I asked the question, how did everyone else find their, you know, find about out about true crime? I feel like this is maybe one of the questions that we've had the most ever answers to. When I screen recorded, I feel like it went for three minutes or something like that. There was oh, really? probably over a thousand responses. So there was a lot of, not a lot, there was actually not as many Gabby Petitos as I thought. I thought a lot of our followers might have found us from Gabby Petito because that seems to kind of reignited the interest in true crime. There was yeah. a lot of John Bonet's, a lot of Lacey Peterson's. Um, I'm just sc scrolling through now to see what else. There was a few un like not very well-known ones. There was one called Drew Shadeen, I think is her name, where she was abducted in North Dakota. I remember her case as well. I feel like that was from the 2000s as well. I'm just trying to see. There was a few Delphi's, a few Jennifer Kessie's, Elizabeth Smart, which was a big one back in the time, um, oh, yeah. OJ Simpson. Um, someone else said Sean Hornbeck, which I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but basically he was abducted, and I feel like he was abducted for years, missing for years, and he was found alive. Someone had actually abducted him and held him, and he was found alive, which is very unusual. Yeah, the name the name rings a bell to me. Susan Powell. It's um, a good one. Yeah, that is an interesting one. That was Kelsey one that I got into really late. With like, I always knew about it, but I more so got 
really into the Susan Powell one with the cold podcast. Yeah, me too. And that was such, I know we've spoken about it before, but that was such a good podcast. So in depth. So good. Yeah. Someone said Kelsey Breath. Do you remember her case where she was abducted by, I think, by the yes. ex? The last CCTV of her was, I think, on Thanksgiving in the supermarket and she had the little baby. And they I, never I found- vaguely remember. That was only recent, like in the last few years, and they never found her body, but I think they found her like teeth, for example. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of Maura Murray's, Natalie Holloway's another older one, Casey and Kaylee Anthony, Madeline McCann, Kristen Smart, which is kind of the trial just happened for that one. Man, I have such a bad memory. When I was like trying to think of what my case would be, I'm like, I have no idea, but now hearing other people's, Elizabeth Smart was probably like the biggest early on one for me that I really like followed yeah like even when I was younger I'd always be just reading about like various crimes and stuff smaller ones like that they don't really stand out to me as much but I definitely followed Elizabeth Smart and like Natalie Holloway I feel like like kind of the most popular let's say five responses were Maura, Lacey Peterson, JonBenet, Gabby and maybe I don't know that maybe just do top four. They were the absolute top four kind of repeated responses of how people came across true crime. Yeah, we should do an episode on Elizabeth Smart. That case was actually really interesting. Yeah, it was, and I like I think we follow her on our Instagram too. She still posts. I think she posted the other day it was the anniversary, like maybe a twenty year anniversary of her disappearance. So, yeah, another crazy, crazy case where a very yeah, unexpected like outcome. A little culty too. That guy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a good one actually. Yeah, and it was so long ago that not everyone remembers like what happened, really. Yeah, the the, more, the case that we're going to discuss today is Maura, as Maura Murray, as you said, and there was a quote from People magazine, which is on the topic of what we've been talking about, where they said that hers was the first crime mystery of the social media age. So she was 2004 when she disappeared, which kind of makes sense in terms of the Rachel Cook um, information that I was saying before. The internet was kind of in its true crime infancy back then. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there was chat you know chat chat rooms and you know what were that even know like google forums and stuff like that so it was a very different true crime space but that's i feel like that is probably when it started to really kick off on the internet yeah i think that's why it's harder for me to remember too cuz one i was younger then and yeah. also cuz like there was no internet so i'd be reading websites about things or i'd see stuff on tv or like tv shows first case that got me into online and all the groups and stuff, as we know, is like Delphi. So that one's like easy to remember. It's Yeah, it's interesting because when I was doing the notes for Maura's case too, a lot of the websites are obviously now defunct. A lot of it isn't kind of available anymore. But some of the things I did find <laughs> was such a flashback. I'm like, wow, I remember these types of websites and, you know, these types of news articles. They're, it's very, very different to what exists today. Yeah, like making GeoCity pages and stuff. <laughs> yeah, or not. <laughs> GeoCities and yeah, yeah. Some sparkly, <laughs> sparkly graphics. Yeah. Back in the old MySpace days. <laughs> yeah. I remember mm. I got a Facebook like when it was still new and you had to have a college email address or something or like be invited. And I was only in maybe like ninth or 10th grade then just because my boyfriend at the time's like cousin was in college and like got on and got us on. And I was, I felt so cool. (laughs) It's crazy now. Cause like even in the groups, when people try and join, it says, you know, it has been a Facebook member for four years or five years. And some people are like 20 years. (laughs) I'm like, wow, time really does. I know. Sometimes I see memories (laughs) that come up and it's like 15 years ago. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. It's insane. And I still like, it blows my mind too, that there are still cases like Maura Murray, like Rachel Cook, that are now 20 plus years old and have still never been solved. Even with all these 
you know, technological and DNA advancements. I, I, we posted an article on our Instagram the other day that said 51% of murders in the US are still going unsolved, which I thought was a massive number considering yeah. the resources that should now be available. I know a lot of the time it's a funding and kind of a staffing issue as well. But yeah, I, I really, really would have thought the solve rate would be higher than that by now. I wonder if the pandemic like affected crimes being solved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess so much harder to kind of work with other people. Yeah. And even to work with other people, like you can't, couldn't just go and have a meeting. You couldn't, you know, it would, yeah. I I have no doubt it did affect it. I'd be interested to see like the stats. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's get into Maura's case. Um, When Maura went missing, Facebook was only five days old, just to give you some perspective on the time period and what the world was like at that time. So like we were saying, it wasn't how it is today where we have Instagram accounts dedicated to crime and Facebook have groups. And- 27 Facebook groups on the one crime. Oh like my that. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's died down at all. I feel like it was crazy it hasn't. for a while. It hasn't. No. Like in the Idaho case, I would go and like, I'm actually a member of a few of them just to look, see what's happening. But yeah, there's still, it's still happening. <laughs> yeah. It's like ridiculous. And then we always like made fun of when it'd be like a, a case that wasn't as popular anymore. Yeah, they'd change the name. <laughs> yeah, when it was a case that wasn't as popular anymore. And then it would die down and they would change the name to like a new case. So it was like, oh, I guess we <laughs> forgot re- about John Bonet. <laughs> Recycle it with their 400 members or whatever and start again on the new case. <laughs> yeah, and the people in the group were probably like, wait, I'm in a group about <laughs> Delphi? <laughs> we don't know where she is and we don't know what happened to her. UMass college student hasn't been seen since she crashed in Woodsville. She was going to graduate into a nursing career. Where is Maura Murray? What happened to her? We've got web sleuths. We've got podcasts. We have tons of armchair detectives out there. Fred, what do you think happened tomorrow? Guy grabbed her and killed her. She was running from the men in her life. You cannot trust anybody. People want answers, and so they start to point fingers. But that's not evidence. Potentially, this could be the last piece of evidence that could help us. I'm convinced Moore is alive. There he is. That's him. I really think you can find her. Where is my daughter? Um, okay. Get into some background about Mora and her life. She was born on May 4th, 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts. Um, she was the fourth child of Frederick. He goes by Fred in the story and Lori Murray. She had an older brother also named Fred, two older sisters, Kathleen and Julie, and a younger half-brother named Kurt. She was raised in an Irish Catholic household, and when she was six years old, her parents got divorced, and after that, she primarily lived with her mother. She graduated from Whitman Hanson Regional High School, where she was a star athlete on the school's track team, and she was accepted into the United States Military Academy at West Point in New York, where she studied chemical engineering for three semesters. After freshman year, she transferred to University of Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing, and she had a boyfriend at the time named Bill Rausch. In the time leading up to her disappearance, Maura had been in some trouble. This info about 
um, an incident that happened at West Point. It's from a Medium article titled The Unsolved Disappearance of Maura Murray. And we'll link the full article on the blog. So it says, in August 2001, while at West Point, Maura was reportedly charged with theft for stealing cosmetics from a store at Fort Knox. An honorary investigative hearing was called on the commanding officer's orders, indicating that they had enough evidence against her to put her to trial before the Cadet Advisory Committee. The Council of Honor then recommended removing Mora from the Cadet Corps. The recommendation was forwarded to the superintendent, who was to make a decision by the end of January 2002. However, Mora officially took a transfer from West Point on January 2nd, 2002, probably to avoid being expelled from West Point. So after this incident, Mora moved to UMass and she started studying nursing in 2003. In November 2003, which is going to be about three months before she went missing, she was found to have stolen credit card numbers. She got the credit card details from receipts that had been thrown away and she ordered pizza. The charge for this was continued in December to be dismissed after three months of good behavior. I don't know how she was getting credit card numbers from receipts. Maybe in those days it was. That's all what I was thinking. Like, did it? Because now I feel like now when you get a receipt, it might have like the last four numbers or whatever, so you know which yeah. card you've paid with. But maybe in the, you know, like I and also I used to work in retail probably a little bit before this, and sometimes we'd have the manual credit card things. Like I, I don't know if you yeah. remember them, where you'd like move it across and it would take an imprint of the credit card. Yeah, we had those too. Like if something would happen yeah, to our computers yeah, when I exactly. worked in the store and like the internet wasn't working. <laughs> I can't believe that was actually a thing. <laughs> I know. But, yeah, so we would have that kind of as a backup <clears throat> if the systems went down or whatever and we'd do that and then they would take the money out of the account later. So maybe it's something along those lines. I don't know. That's what I have always imagined it, it was. Yeah. Also, maybe if like she i don't know where the receipts were from but if it was a place that maybe took like payments over the phone like maybe they'd write down the number yeah yeah all right so we'll get into february 2004 which is right before she disappeared she had a job as an on-campus security officer at umass on thursday february 5th 2004 at 10 20 p.m mora spoke on the phone to her sister kathleen and they had a discussion about kathleen's partner Kathleen has since said that nothing seemed amiss during the call, but 10 minutes later at 10.30 p.m., Mora started crying on the job. When her supervisor arrived and asked her what was going on, she was just completely zoned out, according to the supervisor, and said she had no reaction at all. She was basically unresponsive. Um, the supervisor did say Mora uttered two words, my sister. So this has led a lot of people to speculate what actually happened during the call. And in 2017, years and years later, yeah, like Kathleen decided to later. clarify. Yeah. <laughs> she decided to let us all know. And so I guess Kathleen was a recovering alcoholic and she had been discharged from rehab that evening. And on the way home, her fiance took her to a liquor store, which caused an emotional breakdown, which I have a lot of questions about, but like... Yeah, I feel like even when I was doing the notes, I just went to see if I could actually find if there'd been anything really more said about that. But that is apparently the story that Kathleen has said. Essentially, only she and Maura would likely know. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a very mysterious kind of reason to have a breakdown. Like I get she might have been worried about her sister, but to become unresponsive at that kind of information seems a bit excessive, which I suspect she was covering up for whatever other reason she was really upset about. I mean, if my sister was struggling with 
alcoholism and just got a rehab and went to the fucking liquor store, I'd also be pissed off. But I wouldn't – it's weird that they were like, she was unresponsive. Like, I'd, I'd still be responsive. I could understand about the crying because I would be upset as well. You, like, you'd be disappointed, you'd be upset. But then, yeah, mm-hmm. the zoned out and unresponsive seems like a very unusual and maybe excessive reaction to that kind of news. Yeah, I feel like in pretty much – any situation, unless it was like super, super traumatic, maybe like a death, I, like I'd be responsive, yeah. like a death, or I, I can't even imagine, or like a very bad injury, like something like that would cause that reaction. You would think, yeah. I'm also just like, why was her fiance bringing her to the liquor store? <laughs> yeah, did she want to go, or he was just? I feel like as the years went on, there was a lot about Kathleen and she did seem to have a very toxic relationship with her partner. So that kind of is on story for the other things that came out over the years. It's not like that would have been a one-off. I feel like they were very toxic with each other. Mm. After this, there was a bit of a time lag because the next timestamp in the story is going to be around 1.20 a.m. on February 6th when Maura was escorted back to her dorm by her supervisor i'm interested to know if she was regularly escorted maybe because it was late at night or if she was escorted because she was in trouble yeah or yeah so like i haven't really seen that clarified anywhere um i'm assuming it was probably protocol because she finished her job and she was probably just taken back to her dorm surely she wouldn't have been upset at work for three hours and then finally let to go home i don't know anyway just i mean it was pretty late so yeah So Maura's dad, Fred, arrived in Amherst on Sunday, February 7th, and he said they went car shopping as Maura's car was in bad shape and was unreliable. Her car was a 1996 Saturn. Um, After they went shopping, they also had dinner together. After that, Maura dropped Fred off at his motel and she borrowed his Toyota Corolla. Some reports have said that his car was brand new, but who really knows? She went back to campus to attend a dorm party, and she arrived there at 10.30 p.m. At 2.30 a.m. on now Sunday, but still the same outing of the night, um, February 8th, she left the party. At 3.30 a.m., she was driving to her father's motel, and she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley, causing nearly $10,000 worth of damage to her father's car, which in 2021, it would be about $14,000. So. Like a, lot a lot of damage, yeah. it seems like. Not just a fender bender, it seems like a lot of damage. Yeah. So police responded to the scene, but there wasn't any evidence of a field sobriety test being undertaken, which is surprising. Um, she was taken by police to her father's motel, where she stayed the night. And at 4.49 a.m., there was a cell phone call placed to her boyfriend, Bill, from Fred's phone. But the participants of the phone call are unknown. Like, was it Fred? Was it Mora? I don't know. Yeah, it's strange. Like, I guess her phone might have been dead. I don't know. It just seems unusual to use your dad's phone to call your boyfriend. But it's a very unusual case. And back back then, phones lasted a while. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was like, didn't have a huge screen. And like Nokia and flip phones and stuff back then. Yeah. So later that day, still February 8th, Fred found out that the damage to his car would be covered by his insurance, which is great. Um, he rented a car and dropped Mora at her dorm and departed for Connecticut. And at 11.30 that night, Fred called Mora to remind her to obtain the accident report forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles, and they agreed to talk again Monday night to discuss the forms and fill out the insurance claim paperwork. So not too long after, we're at midnight, like the same night of the 8th, midnight of the 9th now. Just a little bit after she spoke to Fred, Yeah. 
Yeah. So Mora got on her computer to search MapQuest for directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont. MapQuest, for those of you who don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That was like in the old days where you had to go and look up a map and print it out because you didn't have enough, like using your phone on the road is probably not an option back then. Um, Yeah, so I I remember that, like going on trips and you'd go and print out 20 maps of places that you needed to drive to. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's, was there GPSs at that point? Like the big ones that you could put in your car? Would have been very, maybe not very, and not common, like... Yeah, I couldn't even imagine like having to find my way now from a map or written <laughs> directions. I can't even remember what the name of roads are half the time. Um, so after this, nobody reported hearing from Mora until about 1 p.m. when she emailed her boyfriend, Bill. She wrote, love you, Morstead. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to, to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Mora. So I guess... He'd been trying to contact her, it sounds like, you know, when she's like, he obviously said, I love you in his last message. And she's like, I love you more. So. I guess this was kind of before texting too, so. Yeah. So or if you had texts, like, remember in those days you had. It was enough, a billion like, dollars. <laughs> yeah, you had like, I don't know, 50 texts a month or something in yeah. your plan. And then you, yeah. <laughs> um, around the same time, she made a call inquiring about renting a condominium app in Bartlett, New Hampshire. Mora had stayed at this condo with her family in the past, and telephone records indicate the call lasted about three minutes, and she didn't ever end up renting a condo anyways. At 1.13 p.m., Mora called a fellow nursing student. The reasons for the call haven't been made public. At 1.24, she emailed a work supervisor of the nursing school that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family and she said that she would contact them when she returned but since then Morris family confirmed that there was no death she was just lying to get out of school at 2:05 p.m. Mora called a number which provided recorded information about booking hotels in Stowe Vermont that's where I go when I go to Vermont yeah it seems like she was really wanting to go somewhere it doesn't seem like she had a destination in mind just anywhere she could think of and maybe she was saying I guess if she could afford it or if there was availability or I don't know what was going on yeah the call lasted approximately five minutes and at two eighteen p.m she phoned Bill and left a voice message promising they would talk later this call lasted for a minute seems like a long time for a voicemail to say hey I'll call you later sorry I missed you I'll call you later that's literally 10 seconds yeah it's true like I wonder what a she minute's said always to longer me. than you think I'm sure maybe like I'm just obviously speculating but maybe it was along the lines of hey I'm gonna go away or like I would love to know what was said in that voicemail can we ask Bill you <laughs> <laughs> <I> can try <laughs> remember he was in our you don't have to put this in but remember he was in our group for a bit yeah he would message us that's what yeah, I was saying I forgot about that yeah That's why I was like, I'm surprised he didn't tell us. (laughs) After this, Mora started packing up her vehicle. She took clothing, toiletries, her textbooks, and birth control pills. At some point between Sunday and Monday, she also removed the art from the walls of her dorm room and put most of her belongings into boxes. I have also read some other kind of conflicting things where people have said that maybe she hadn't actually unpacked after like, I don't know, break or whatever. Like, I don't know how it works Mm -hmm. there because I'm assuming, no, February, she would have probably just returned after Christmas break. Yeah. Um, so maybe she'd change dorms. Like I, I don't think it's ever really been confirmed either that she packed up or she hadn't unpacked. But either way, her apartment wasn't packed. I wasn't, you know, ready to go and unpacked. Yeah, it makes sense if she just never unpacked. She seems like the type to not unpack. Yeah. It's interesting she brought her textbooks though. 
Yeah, why would you bother if you were planning to never come back? Or even if you were planning to, like, come back. Like, I don't know. Seems like I wouldn't be reading my textbooks. Yeah. While I was away. I feel like the birth control pills are interesting because that does indicate that she was wanted to kind of maintain her routine and her schedule Mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, if she was really planning to just vanish forever, why would you bother taking your birth control pills? Yeah. Another weird thing is she printed an email between her and Bill that indicated there had been some trouble in their relationship and she left the paper on top of the boxes. So, yeah, so she left that in the dorm room, like, for whoever to find it seems yeah well obviously she seems to have left it in very plain sight on top of things that would be seen very clearly as soon as someone entered the dorm so it seems like she absolutely wanted that email to be found Hmm. interesting just as a note there weren't any classes on campus that day due to a snowstorm Mora emailed her homework at 3 32 a.m on february 9th the very morning she disappeared if it were me and i If I was done with nursing school, I wouldn't do my homework assignments. That would be the last thing I would waste my time doing. So it seemed like she maybe just needed a break and intended on coming back. Maura had called me and told me that she had to go home for a family emergency and she wanted to come return the clothes that she had borrowed and I told her that she didn't have to, that it wasn't a big deal. I asked her if everything was okay, and it sounded like she was crying. And she mentioned something about her sister, but she just only said my sister and then didn't really divulge any further. Just Just a family family emergency. emergency. With something to do with her sister. And then I ended up watching TV and I fell asleep. And there was a knock on my door, but I didn't think anything of it. I wasn't expecting company and fell back asleep. And when I woke up and opened the door, my clothes were in a little baggie in front of my dorm room. So she had come back and returned them. That was the afternoon she left for New Hampshire. Yeah. It was February 9th, 2004, just four and a half hours before Maura Murray vanished. Wow, so if you had answered the door, you would have seen Maura. Yeah. If I had gotten out of bed, I felt guilty about that for a long time. You know, like maybe things would have turned out different. So Maura drove away from UMass at 3.30 on February 9th. And at 3.40, she stopped and withdrew $280 from an ATM. And it seems like that was pretty much all the money in her account. There might have been like a few dollars left that maybe like didn't fit the increment that you were allowed to take yeah, out. Yeah, like only $20 notes or $10 notes or whatever. Yeah. She then went to a liquor store where she purchased $40 worth of alcoholic beverages, including Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franzia wine. She was seen on CCTV and she was alone. I posted a photo and I in mix. Yeah, I posted a photo. There's actually a photo of her at the ATM. I posted it on Instagram yesterday, so I'll put it on the blog. Um, you know, <laughs> I guess you can read what you want into the CCTV image, but she doesn't look very happy. But I guess I don't go smiling to the ATM when I'm getting out money either. Like, I literally just <laughs> look, she's getting out money, she gets the money, and she leaves. It's like, you know, people are like, was she under duress? Was someone making her get the money out? I don't think so. I think that she was literally running a boring errand, and that was all there was to it. Yeah. If some, it wouldn't make sense, really. I feel like if someone was making her get out the money, but then she like just went to the liquor store and bought some stuff. Um, so at some point on the 9th, Maura did pick up the accident forms that her father requested she get. It's weird. 
Because like some things make it seem like she was like, oh, fuck this place. I'm running away. But then things like this, it's like she didn't seem like she was trying to run away, really. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I still can't figure out what her motivation was for doing some things. Maybe she was just very scattered and she really did some things on autopilot and then other things, you know, I don't know. I yeah. guess we'll never really know. Mora left Amherst between 4 and 5 p.m. on February 9th, and the last use of her cell phone was at 4.37 when she checked her voicemail. Shortly after 7 p.m., Faith Westman, a resident in Woodsville, New Hampshire, heard a loud thump outside of her door, and she looked out her window and could see that a car had hit a snowbank. Faith called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 7.27 to report the accident. The 911 log says that Faith reported there was a man smoking a cigarette inside the vehicle, but she later stated that she hadn't seen a man nor a person smoking a cigarette, but rather that she had seen what appeared to be a red light glowing from inside the car, potentially from a cell phone. That's also confusing. Yeah, I feel like a cell phone would be usually yellow or green or, you know, in the old days, I was thinking like they too, had a I was green like, screen. But, yeah, like um, what red light would be on a phone back then? I don't know. I guess it could be. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's a long time ago, and I guess we don't ever know what kind of phone she had either. So, I feel like she's – like, they wouldn't have just gotten cigarette out of nowhere. I feel like she was like, I see a red light. Like, maybe like a cigarette, like a phone. Mm. I don't believe her. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of back and forth um, about kind of the witnesses in this case. There's a really good long form podcast called Missing Maura Murray where I think it even went for years where they go into so much detail about all the witnesses and their stories. So what we're doing in this episode is just kind of the general overview and the main facts. But yeah, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of questions about the witnesses and their statements and their stories over the years. Yeah, and you know a lot about this case. Like, Olivia knows a lot about this case. I feel like this is probably the first true crime podcast I ever listened to was the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Um, really? You, yeah, I feel like that was probably the first podcast yeah, I ever got into. First one I listened to was Serial, like everyone else. <laughs> so from there, a local bus driver named Butch Atwood was driving past the scene. He stopped at 7.33. He spoke with Maura for a few minutes, and he asked her if she wanted him to contact the cops. She declined, claiming she'd already phoned AAA. According to one police log, Maura begged Butch not to call the cops. But Butch knew that the AAA story was likely untrue because there wasn't any cell phone service at the crash site, and he noticed that she was shivering and cold and that she appeared to be inebriated. To him, she didn't look to be injured, though. So Butch walked 100 yards up the road to the house that he shared with his wife and called 911. After initially failing to get through, he was able to report the accident at 743. Butch couldn't see Mora's car from his house, but he was able to see several other cars driving past. And just as a side note, the location of this accident was 150 miles or about a 2.5 hour drive from Amherst. I feel like that's just kind of an interesting point because let's just say they said she left between four and five. So let's say she left left closer to five. That essentially means she probably drove that whole way without stopping. Like I guess if she left at four, she could have stopped somewhere for a half an hour or, you know, but essentially it seems like she didn't, either way, she didn't stop for long along the way. She drove straight to where she had the accident pretty much. Yeah. So police officially arrived on the scene at 746. The attending officer is Sergeant Cecil Smith. And we say officially because another witness 
has said that at 7.37, she drove to the scene and saw a police SUV parked face-to-face with Morris. She pulled over briefly and didn't see anyone inside or outside the cars and decided to continue home. This has never proven to be true, but it's caused a lot of speculation over the years. At 7.46, Mora was nowhere to be seen when the police officially arrived. I'm guessing, right? Yeah. Yeah, 7.46. In terms of damage to the car, it was inoperable. It hit a tree on the driver's side of the vehicle, severely damaging the left headlight and pushing the car's radiator into the fan. The car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side and both airbags had deployed and the car was locked. Inside and outside the car, Sergeant Smith saw red stains that looked to be looked like red wine. Inside the car, the officer found an empty beer bottle and a damaged box of Franzia wine on the rear seat. In addition, but was the Franzia empty or just damaged? Mm, I don't know. I, I don't think it was empty from what I recall. I Yeah, I'm not. I'll see if I can Google it while you're talking, but I've never really seen. In addition, he found a AAA card issued to Mora blank accident forum reports gloves compact discs makeup diamond jewelry driving directions from burlington vermont i mean driving directions to burlington vermont Moore's favorite stuffed animal and not without peril a book about mountain climbing in the white mountains mora's debit card credit cards and cell phone were all missing from the vehicle None of these items were ever found. Police also later cross-checked what Mora had purchased at the liquor store, and some of the bottles were found to be missing. Butch and Sergeant Smith drove around the area looking for Mora, and at around 8 p.m., EMS and a fire truck arrived to clear the scene. The car was towed by 8.49 p.m., and Sergeant Smith left the scene at 9.30 p.m. Upon further investigation of the car, a rag that was believed to have been part of Mora's emergency roadside kit was discovered stuffed into the Saturn's muffler. An auto mechanic was later asked about why this would have occurred. He explained that stuffing a rag into a car's tailpipe can be a way to plug it to check for leaks in the exhaust system, but that it would also stall the vehicle and at some point destroy the engine. Was anything about the scene unusual to you? I walked up and down the snowbanks a little ways, and my partner says, what's with the rag in the exhaust pipe? I'm like, wow, what is that? We're talking with Dick Guy, one of the first responders to Mora's accident scene. It was like a dish towel. That kind of was a head scratcher, because you don't see that. Can you explain to me how it was in the tailpipe? It, it looked like it was it was stuffed in and it was hanging out eight inches, 10 inches or so, not quite to the ground. And it really seemed odd. It made no sense. Have you ever arrived at an accident scene and seen a rag in a tailpipe? No, never. So why would anybody put a rag in a tailpipe? I wondered if she might have stopped at the little store maybe half a mile before, and somebody had sabotaged her car, trying to make it stall. If Mora's car were sabotaged, it would have been easy for the culprit to trail a short distance behind and pretend to lend a helping hand. That's a pretty remote part of the world. Cell phones don't work at all. It's a part of the world where ordinarily, if somebody gets in an accident, they might have gotten or taken a ride with somebody. 
Fred, her father, has since said that he believes Maura's car may have been smoking and that she used the rag to stop that. Couldn't you also give yourself like carbon monoxide poisoning? Yeah, there's been a whole bunch of speculation about this too. Like someone, one theory was that someone had actually stuffed it in the car so the car would break down or, you know, like mm. those kind of theories. I feel like her car was absolutely just falling apart. Fred had been there to try and buy the new car with her. It really, really seems like the car was on its last leg. So I think the most likely um, scenario is that she put the rag in the tailpipe herself. Yeah. There was an alleged sighting of Mora between 8 and 9.30 p.m. on February 9th. And between 8 and 8.30, a contractor returning home from Franconia saw a young person moving quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112, about four to five miles east of where Mora's vehicle was discovered. He noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hood. He did not report it to police immediately due to his own confusion of dates, only discovering three months later he had spotted the young person the same night that Maura disappeared. Just like as a kind of add-on to that. So this is February. It was snowy. There was snow everywhere. It was freezing cold. Maura was also a runner. There's some photos of her like running with like a kind of, you know, like a numbered bib on, like running a race or a marathon or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess, you know, going the four to five miles in an hour or, you know, an hour and a bit wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for her. Um, Yeah, that's true. But, yeah, it's never, ever been confirmed that that was Maura. It's just kind of an interesting note because you would think also snowy, dark, freezing cold, there probably aren't going to be many people out on the road at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, an interesting coincidence either way. At 12.36 p.m. the following day, February 10th, a bolo was issued for Mora. A voicemail was left on Fred's home answering machine at 3.20 p.m. saying that her car had been found abandoned. He was working out of state and didn't receive the call. At 5 p.m., one of Mora's sisters called Fred to let him know that Mora was missing. He then contacted the Haverhill Police Department and was told that if Mora was not reported safe by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department would start a search weird fishing game i guess they'd be the ones to be out in the wilderness though yeah so. like it's it's very rugged out there in the mountains so yeah i guess they would be running the search mora was first referred to as missing at 517 on february 10th on february 11th fred and some other members of mora's family traveled to the area where she vanished they worked with new hampshire fish and game to conduct a search a police dog used one of Mora's gloves to track her scent, and the dog tracked it to 100 yards east of where her car was found, but then lost the scent. Some believe this may mean that Mora had left the area in a vehicle, or like why else would her scent suddenly just stop? I guess you also have to take into account, too, this was almost two days after she vanished, so mm-hmm. there was probably snow, maybe rain. Like There are other reasons, I guess, that have been discussed why the dogs could have lost the scent, but that is... I guess a plausible one that she did get into a vehicle as well. Yeah. It's not like that was they were searching half an hour after she left, for example. This was days, so Yeah. Um, Bill, her boyfriend, and his parents arrived in the area at 5 p.m. that day. Police questioned him both alone and with his parents present. We learned that while he was flying to Haverhill, Bill turned off his phone. When he turned it back on, there was a voicemail that he believed was the sound of Mora crying. This call was eventually traced back to a calling card issued by the American Red Cross. I don't even get like what that means. Yeah, like it sounds like they were kind of implying that maybe Mora had somehow meant uh, tried to contact him and had left this voicemail. That's what I always assumed. 
But I mean, like, why would she be using a calling card issued by the American Red Cross? I guess maybe her phone was dead. She had no nowhere to charge it. Maybe in her possession, she'd found a payphone and had a Red Cross some for some reason had a calling card. I don't know. Like, I guess we have to remember too that this was a long time ago now. So, kind of charging facilities and those types of things weren't available. So maybe somehow she came across a payphone, a public phone, and used that. I don't know. What's a calling card? Just when they, there's money on the card. Yeah. So like what it, what it used to be, it's kind of like like a gift card now. So but you could yeah. use it for okay, calls. So you, you'd get like a ten, just say for example, like a ten dollar calling card, and it usually have a pin number. So you'd you'd make the call, put the pin in, then it would let you call another number, like basically using that credit that you've got on that card. Okay, that's what I thought, but I yeah. wanted to make sure. Yeah, I didn't even think that people wouldn't know what that was. <laughs> yeah, I just. Th- <laughs> It just seemed weird to me because the the Red Cross was like throwing me off. (laughs) Basically, it's a gift card to make a phone call in the old days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Sharon Roush, Bill's mother, described the message. She said, it was very short, consisted of a shivering, soft, whimpering sound with labored breathing as if someone was very cold, which I guess would kind of make sense if it could have been her and if that guy did possibly see that person like running around out in the cold yeah bill had been having problems with his phone where callers were sometimes sent to voicemail without realizing it which could explain why a message was left in no one spoke so maybe she didn't realize that she was leaving a voicemail at 7 p.m that day police said they believed mora had either run away or taken her own life So the FBI joined the search for Maura 10 days after she disappeared. The searches continued by other law enforcement agencies as well as the days went on. They used resources such as helicopters with thermal imaging, tracking dogs, and cadaver dogs. In March 2004, so around a month after Maura disappeared, Brianna Maitland went missing in Montgomery in Vermont. There are some similarities about their cases that have been kind of discussed over the years. Both of their cars had been involved in an accident prior to both of the women disappearing. Brianna disappeared around 66 miles away from where Maura was last seen. I feel like a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the photo of Brianna's car. It had kind of been backed up almost. I think she had it had crashed into this old wooden barn. Like yeah, it wasn't, I've seen it. Yeah, it's a very kind of eerie last images photo. So I feel like a lot of the people who are listening would be familiar with that. But mm-hmm. Brianna is also still missing, which is interesting. But police have said repeatedly there is likely no connection between the two cases. So Maura's case is one where a lot of people went crazy and inserted themselves. In late 2004, a man gave Fred, who's Maura's dad, a rusty stained knife that had allegedly belonged to the man's brother. His brother and the brother's girlfriend were said to have acted strangely after Maura's disappearance, and the man's brother claimed he believed the knife had been used to kill Maura. Just days after the man told Fred this story, the man's brother scrapped his Volvo. Family members of this man who turned in the knife claimed he had made up the story in order to obtain the reward money for drugs, basically. In 2006, so now we're at, like, this is, this is what happened. It caught, like, there was a search, but the time just seems to have really slipped away. I guess now we're looking back, it's, you know, been almost 20 years. But this is 2006, so essentially not really much happened in the first few years. The New Hampshire League of Investigators, which was made up of 10 retired police officers and detectives, started working with the Molly Bish Foundation on the case. Tom Shamshack, who's a former police chief and a member of Licensed Private Detectives Association of Massachusetts, said, it appears that this is something beyond a mere missing persons case. Something ominous could have happened here. Could have. Yeah. So in a lot of podcasts and articles about Maura's case, you'll hear the A-frame house referred to. This was a house that was a few miles away from where Maura's car was found. 
In October 2006, volunteers conducted a search around that area. They searched the A-frame house and cadaver dogs allegedly, quote, went bonkers, possibly identifying the presence of human remains. Interestingly, the house had been formerly the residence of the man implicated by his brother who had given Fred the rusty knife. That's weird. <laughs> like it's just so many, there's a lot of sketchy people in the area. Uh, I don't know. Nothing has ever come from this though. Like there was a um, documentary I think with Maggie Freeland about this case. They did take carpet from the house for testing. As far as I can tell, the results have never been made public. I don't know if the carpet was too degraded or if the samples were too degraded, but essentially it's never, ever, ever been confirmed as being tied to Maura's case. On the 10th anniversary of her disappearance in 2014, Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzen said, we haven't had any credible sightings of Maura since the night she disappeared. Fred spoke to the New York Daily News for the anniversary and he said he believed that Maura had been abducted and that she was no longer alive. On the 15th anniversary in 2019, Fred spoke about his belief that Maura had been murdered in the A-frame house. He said, that's my daughter, I do believe. In April 2019, the house got new owners and they allowed a search to take place. There's a quote from an article and it says, the excavation conducted in early April found absolutely nothing other than what appears to be a piece of old pottery or piping. So, because I feel like over the years there was kind of some back and forth about searches being allowed, but they were finally allowed full access in 2019 and still essentially nothing really was found. Hmm. So that is kind of it in regards to Maura's disappearance and the search for her. In terms of recent updates, in late 2021, human remains were found at a site around 25 miles from the crash scene. Maura was familiar with the area, so I kind of thought maybe this is it. Maybe this is really her, you know, finally we might get a you know, conclusion to this, but it wasn't. In November 2021, the remains were announced as not belonging to Maura. In January 2022, the FBI issued a national alert in Mora's case and they created a violent criminal apprehension profile which allows multiple law enforcement agencies to share information about her. In July 2022, they did conduct a search in New Hampshire in the towns of Landaff and Easton for Mora. So they're obviously still working on maybe some tips, some possibilities, because I feel like they just wouldn't be searching random towns 20 years later for no reason. Yeah, definitely. So this year was the night in February, earlier in February, was the 19th anniversary of Maura's disappearance. Her family placed new billboards in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Her sister Julie is now kind of the mouthpiece for the family and she spoke to the media. She said, I cannot believe it's been this long. At the same time, it feels like it was just yesterday. It's got a lot of positive energy, which is exactly what we need at exactly the right time. And she also said, there's been no cell phone activity, no bank activity, not a single credible sighting in 19 years. Based on that, it leads to me, me to believe she's no longer with us and most likely she met with foul play. Maura Murray was a star athlete from Massachusetts studying nursing at UMass Amherst. On February 9th, 2004, she crashed her car into a snowbank in Haverhill. Multiple law enforcement search efforts have focused on the woods and houses near the crash. Last summer, a large-scale grid search was conducted under the helm of a new lead investigator. The latest push by Mora's family is a billboard campaign, and the family says it's already generating new leads. I cannot believe that it's been this long, um, but at the same time, it feels like it was just yesterday. The mystery surrounding Maura Murray's disappearance is fascination and fodder for armchair detectives, psychics, podcasters, news programs, even TikTok. 
Now, a new billboard campaign is saturating Massachusetts and New Hampshire. It's gotten a lot of positive energy, which is exactly what we need in exactly the right time. It was February 9th, 2004. Police received two calls from two residents reporting a car off the road, the first at 727. A local bus driver later told investigators he saw a woman standing outside the black Saturn. An officer arrived at 746, finding the car locked and no one around. So since Maura vanished, there have been two other notable losses in her family. You don't hear much about her mother and kind of her mother's role in the search for her, but that's because she was battling cancer at the time Maura disappeared and she actually passed away in May 2009 after her battle with cancer. Um, Maura's sister Kathleen, who was the one that she had the upsetting phone call with on the night before she vanished, died at age 44 in November 2021. Her, her obituary says she passed from cancer also, but I, we know that she had some alcohol and addiction issues over the years as well. So we will get now into kind of theories about Maura's case, um, and there are a lot of them. <laughs> so I've tried to pick <laughs> the main ones that maybe have some credibility um, just to go through because it's, uh, honestly, we could, do, we could do a whole series on Maura and there are a whole series podcasts. So I definitely recommend checking those out if you want to do a total, total deep dive. So the first theory that we'll discuss is that Maura left to start a new life. There's an author in this case named James Renner, who if you've followed her case over the years, you'll be familiar with it. He used to have a blog for Maura. The blog um, was called mauramurraymystery.com. I actually went on just to have another look. I read his blog for years and years and years. He's taken all the Maura posts down, um, which is a shame. I've, I've found some archives of them, but he wrote a book about Maura, um, called True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray. But one of his main theories is that she ran away. He believes that her troubles piled up, the West Point expulsion, credit card fraud, crashing her dad's car, the troubles that she was having with Bill, and that she left to start again somewhere. He insinuated that she might have been pregnant at the time and she may now be living in Canada. Um, he made this post on the blog in June 2022. He said, I've decided to take a break from covering the Maura Murray case and the stories of all the victims at this time. Thank you for following my writing over the years, more stories and more cases to come. So as part of his theory about her running away, just as kind of another weird side note, on February 6th at the university, there was a hit and run that left a man injured. An article was posted about this on February 9, which is the day that Maura vanished. So the timing's interesting. Also, mm. we know that her car had a whole bunch of damage, so maybe more damage wouldn't have been noticeable. But a lot of people have theorised over the years that Maura may have been the one responsible for this hit and run. There's an article about it. I'll just read some of the information. It says, a University of Massachusetts male student was found early Friday morning lying unconscious in the road, apparently either hit by or having fallen from a moving vehicle. Patrick Vassy, 22, of Dorchester, Mass, was found by the Amherst police at 12.20. Police described his condition as being consistent with being struck by or falling from a motor vehicle. He sustained serious head injuries and was in a critical condition. And then it says, APD has not identified the operator of any vehicle involved in the incident, nor have they obtained a description of the vehicles. So as part of this speculation, people have su suggested that maybe Maura staged this crash to cover up any additional damage from the hit and run. Um, mm. Like, I guess it's possible. It does seem kind of far-fetched. Um, I don't know, but I guess, you know, anything's possible. We've seen weird, stranger things happen. Her life seemed so, like, chaotic, hectic at the yeah. time that I, in any other situation, I'd be like, nah. But this one, I'm like, eh, maybe. M maybe. Like, it, it does all kind of 
fit in as a possibility, but then it could also actually be totally unrelated. And do you know what I mean? Like it's just Mm -hmm. we don't know. So I feel like there hasn't been any ever an arrest in, in the hit and run case. Treat Vassy did comment online. He said, hello to everyone that's involved in the search. I am Patrit. Somehow I've been linked with Maura because I had an accident that left me in a coma the same day that she disappeared. I just want to say this once, not because I'm tired of explaining, but because I don't know anything. I didn't know Maura. I know nothing about her. I feel bad for her family, but I cannot help since I know nothing myself. I don't know who caused my accident. I'm unaware of the school's cameras or even if they had any. I was a college student that went to school to my room and hung out with my friends. We don't pay attention to details because we are young and stupid. I feel for Maura's family, but I cannot help because I do not know what happened to me. I went to a bar, got intoxicated, and as I was walking, a car hit me. Anything more, I do not know. I hope this puts to rest all of your questions and apparently the link that some of you think exists between me and Maura. Probably was getting like harassed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And especially with kind of the increased attention over the past five years that this case has gotten, Uh, Yeah, I'm not surprised he had to make a statement eventually. Um, So the second theory is that Maura was murdered by an opportunistic killer. So this has been discussed a lot. Many people believe that there was a genuine car accident. She went into the snowbank and that she may have accepted a lift from the wrong person. Some people even pointed fingers at Butch Atwood, who was the bus driver, who stopped at the crash scene. Um, He died in 2018 in Florida Butch was a very overweight man. He was very unfit. He had a lot of health problems. I just feel like he likely isn't the person who, you know, who, if, if someone did something tomorrow, I feel like it probably wasn't him. It's also kind of important to note that no suspects have ever been named publicly in this case. There has The police have absolutely not ever named a single person. Again, I guess it's a possibility. Maybe she did, maybe the 100 yards thing, you know, scent that the dogs found was true and she did get in the car with the wrong person. I just feel like her luck, if that is the case, was so, so rotten. I, I, I feel like this isn't what happened, but I guess it is a plausible explanation. But like... Someone else saw her crash and then Butch was also there and then Butch went and called 911. Like it doesn't seem like there'd be a lot of time for him to do anything, especially if you're saying he's like not very fit or agile. Yeah. And when I mention that because I in terms of, you know, dragging someone or abducting someone, a, a fit and healthy woman, that would be an effort. Like it's not like it was a little kid who he could just put under his arm and walk away. It was a woman who would have struggled and so that's that's kind of why I mentioned his fitness if anyone's wondering yeah. and there's that woman faith like she was also kind of half paying attention to yeah um there was also kind of rumors in terms of there being a tandem driver that Mora had planned this with someone someone was following behind and that I guess I actually that probably goes with the hit and run incident that she planned this she just crashed the car on purpose and someone picked her up which again could explain the car getting into the car and the scent, mm. I feel like that's very unlikely as well. But also, if she was planning to crash her car, like, don't you think she would have planned to crash it in a place where people wouldn't see? Yeah, exactly. The, to call the police. Unless unless maybe she wanted some people to see and she knew that she wasn't going to be in the area for more than a few minutes. I don't know. Yeah. There's just so many possibilities and questions. Mm. One other theory that has been discussed a lot is that Bill is involved, her boyfriend Bill. As we mentioned before, Bill was in our Facebook group. There's been a lot of spotlight put on him over the years. He is apparently not the nicest person. Um, We know that Maura left the email outlining their kind of relationship troubles on the box for someone to find. There were also the rumors that Maura was pregnant to Bill and he wasn't happy about it. Over the years, various people who apparently have known Bill have come forward. One 
lady said about an incident with him. She said, at a stoplight, Bill reached over and grabbed her by the neck and said, I'm going to kill you like I killed Maura. She reached over and dug her nails into him and she said, I'll rip your crotch off. So I feel like that's very out there. It could it could have happened. I don't know. I feel like surely it didn't, but I guess it could have. <laughs> But So we won't get into too many rumours about Bill. There are a lot. If you want to Google Bill Roush Murray, you can read them all. What is confirmed and isn't rumour is that Bill was charged with third-degree sex abuse at one point. This isn't related to Mora. This is related to someone else. Um, this article is from dcwitness.org. It said, during a July 19 hearing, a defendant pled guilty to a misdemeanor assault. William Roush, 42, so this is obviously years and years after Mora vanished, was originally charged with th- third degree sex abuse. He pled guilty to misdemeanor simple assault in front of a judge. This kind of facts about the incident is that on March 17, 2011, a woman went out to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with her colleagues. When she went back to the office to get her coat, she got trapped in the entranceway of the double door. They contacted Bill because he had the keys to unlock the door. He told the vi- When he got there, he told the victim that he wanted to speak with her and she said yes. He took her into a conference room, turned off the lights, pushed her against a table and pressed himself against her backside. So he pled guilty to that, um, had a potential penalty of 180 days in jail and, and or a fine of $1,000. So on September 16, he was sentenced to 180 days in jail. I did read though he would only end up sending 60 days. I can't really find the confirmed sentence, but either way, he didn't spend more than a few months in jail. Kind of interestingly, Bill, I'm assuming this is Bill, has made his own website. If it's not Bill, it's someone who's very creepy because the website <laughs> is billrausch.net. So it's kind of like a resume for Bill. I'll read a little bit about what he's written. It's I, I feel like this has kind of been created to as a character witness for Bill, just to kind of outline all the good things that he's apparently done. And It's uh, like, I'm not that bad. Yeah, exactly. Because over the years, he has been grilled and grilled and grilled. So I'll just read some of it from his website. It says, a graduate of, graduate of West Point, Bill Roush has dedicated his professional career to serving his country in the military, private, and nonprofit sectors. He's the former director of Got Your Six, which oversees to shift the public's perception of veterans as broken heroes to one of veterans as civic assets. Under the leadership of Bill Roush, Got Your Six received the prestigious Social Good Award presented by Synopsis for the Best Awareness Campaign of 2016. So it goes in about the things that he did in the Iraq War. He's supported more than 250,000 veterans by signing petitions. Um, They talk about his kind of media career. He's appeared on NBC Nightly News, C-SPAN's Washington Journal. So it basically just goes on to talk about how great Bill is. There is a section about Mora on Bill's website. It's very small, hasn't been updated for a while, but I'll read a portion of it. It says, in 2004, I was a lieutenant in the Army stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. It's also important to note just before I go on that Bill wasn't apparently in Massachusetts at the time, He or it's never been confirmed. He was living interstate. They were having a long-distance relationship. He said, I had a good job, close friends, and a loving girlfriend, Maura Murray. On February 10, 2004, my world turned upside down when I received a call from Maura's father, Fred. He told me Maura's car was found on the side of the road in New Hampshire and Maura was nowhere to be found. She was missing. To learn more about Maura and efforts to find her, please visit her official website at mauramurraymissing.org, sign up for updates, find out how to become more involved and raise awareness by sharing the site on social media using the hashtag findmora. Working together, I believe we will find Maura. So Bill is creepy. Bill isn't the nicest guy. Apparently, you know, he pled guilty. Maybe he had tactical reasons for doing that if it wasn't true. But either way, there is a lot 
about him that seems sketchy. Even though he's seems like kind of not a great person, I don't get how he could be involved with her death so much. I feel like he's involved in that he probably knows more about her state of mind at the time. Yeah. Like maybe she was pregnant. Maybe he told her, like this is all speculation. Maybe he told her to get an abortion. Maybe, you know, like they were having or issues. Or he might at least know why why she was like acting so yeah, weird. that's and, like, what I mean. It seems like she was drinking a lot. I feel like for her to leave the email on the box, that – shows that this was playing a big part in her mind frame mindset at the time yeah so i feel like he would he may know more in that regard i don't think he killed mora um i feel like I he feel like just it'd be easy might to be withholding kind of prove information where he was yeah absolutely um yeah it's weird he's never said anything after all this time um the four one of the we're nearly at the we've got a few more theories to discuss one of the other theories which you won't spend too much time on is that there was like a police cover-up the police are involved this kind of goes back to the witness saying there was the car parked right in front of Mora's car you know the police cruiser but there was no no one was around um some people believe that the police know more about what happened to Mora I guess this kind of ties in with the opportunistic killer theory um do you know what I mean like the police showed up saw a, a girl who was in distress and did something to her I feel like mm. unlikely. Again, though, possibly a possibility. <laughs> possibly a possibility. I agree, unlikely. Um, this I asked on Instagram what everyone's theories was were, and this I think probably ninety percent of people said is what they thought happened tomorrow. I have to say I probably agree. Um, is basically that she wandered and died of exposure. It was freezing. There was lots of snow. They said that she appeared inebriated. We know that she had a lot of alcohol and they said some of it was missing. So maybe she took it with her. She was possibly disoriented. Maybe she hit her head in the accident. If you look at the areas where Maura disappeared, it's very, very thick, rural trees, mountains. I feel like you could wander and she was, you know, she knew the area well. I feel like you could wander and be lost and never, ever found absolutely in that area. Yeah, that's what I would feel like too because it was cold that night and she probably just got lost wandering around. She didn't really seem to be overly like coherent or she seemed like to be in some sort of distress. My questions would more be like, why did she do all this? Like what was going on? It's more like what I wonder about. I feel like she was probably drunk at the time. I have read that that she may have had an issue with alcohol and maybe if that's the case and when you drink, you feel warm. Like usually you feel warmer. Mm-hmm. So and it sounds like she didn't have, you know, a huge winter coat with her. She she probably had jeans and a t-shirt and a, like a light coat. It doesn't sound like she was equipped to go out into the bush. Maybe she felt hot when she was drinking and then she died from the exposure because she didn't realize how actually cold it was. Yeah, and it could still line up with maybe that person seeing her and like Bill getting that weird voicemail on his phone like where they even said it sounded like a cold person like scurrying around basically. And I think that guy who apparently saw her said it was I think five to eight miles from the crash scene. So let's just say she walked along the highway for eight or ten miles and then she entered the bush or the, you know, what do you call it? Forest, whatever you guys call it. The woods. <laughs> the woods. To um, try and get some shelter for the night. Maybe she thought, I, I don't even know what her thought process would have been, but let's just say that's, that's 10 miles up the road. That's a whole other area that you need to search. I just don't think you could ever actually possibly, humanly possibly search that area. Yeah, I mean, maybe she was drinking and driving, accidentally crashed, didn't want to get in trouble, so she like ran away into the woods and then got lost. There's a case of another missing person, which I've put in the notes because I feel like it's interesting to note how 
close some missing people are eventually found from where they went missing years later. So there was the case of a man called Brian Barton. I believe he had a disappeared episode, one of the early ones. He went missing in Washington in 2005, so around the same time as Maura. Brian had been going through some relationship troubles at the time. He'd also been associated with some shady characters, which I remember was part of the disappeared episode. These people over the years had their personal lives blasted all over the internet, very like Bill and Butch Atwood and all the other people in this case who have had the same happen to them. 12 years later, in 2017, Brian's remains were found in an overgrown brush behind a church. The church was one mile from where he was last seen. It was in a residential and suburban area, and it still took people more than a decade to find him. I'm assuming he probably hanged himself from a tree in this area and just was never found. But literally when I looked it up on Street View, it's a suburb. Like you would drive past, if you lived in that area, you'd drive past that church daily and still no one found him for 12 years. That's crazy. It's like the people they find in their houses after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many cases where they found like less than a mile from where they went missing. And it's just a matter of circumstance that they haven't been found for X amount of time or are never found. Mm Mm-hmm. The last theory I think is probably the second theory that I would think would be the most plausible is that Maura took her own life. Um, Maybe she had this car accident. It was the final straw. She just thought, fuck it, I've had enough, went into the woods, knew she was going to die and did it for that purpose. Um, Kind of ties in with the dying within the elements theory because I'm assuming that's probably how she would have passed if she did go into the woods anyway to try and die. Maybe she was planning to go kill herself in Burlington because it seems like she could have kind of set up for that except for taking the textbooks and taking getting the accident report stuff is the only thing that'd be weird. But like how she left that note out and like kind of her stuff was packed up and she wanted to go to Burlington. So she was just getting drunk like, fuck it, I'm going to go kill myself. But then she accidentally crashed along the way and was like, oops. Yeah. So I feel like also like all of the theories are somewhat plausible. Some are more plausible than others, I guess. But, you know, as we have learned, stranger things happen. So we just essentially don't know. It's it's a disappointing end for her family as well to never, ever. I can't even imagine going 20 years without knowing what happened to your loved one. I know. It drive me crazy. One thing I do think just kind of as my final note is I wonder if the call that Maura took that night that made her so upset was actually Bill-related. Like maybe he was like, no, you need to, let's, for example, say get rid of the baby or I'm breaking up with you unless you get rid of the baby, that like something along those lines would maybe explain why she was more distraught than just her sister going to a liquor store possibly. Yeah, maybe. That's my final thought on maybe what the call was related to. I'm like more curious about what was going on in her life than I am curious about how she died. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because there are people who hold the key, but I guess, you know, Bill wants to keep his privacy and I guess keep Maura's privacy to an extent. Her family may not have even been aware to a very large extent of what was happening with her. Yeah, I just feel like we're never, ever, ever going to find out. Yeah, um, even if they find her, like, they won't be able to really no. tell much. Like, maybe they'll find a bone and that's it and we will still never actually know what happened. I mean, I guess if it's like in the middle of the woods, you could kind of assume she just wandered off and died, but you don't know if maybe she was somehow killed in the woods. I don't know. Yeah. I, f- I feel like too much time has gone by now for there to ever really going to be ever proper answers. It's crazy how much, even though th- this was like a, a long time ago, it wasn't that long ago, but it's crazy how different it is now where you could tell so much more about like what's going on with the person. Yeah. Because- 
of their phone, their social media, their texts, like everyone's just constantly on their phones, like their search history. Like I know there's computers then, but like it's not the same as the search history on your phone where you can just Google shit all day anytime you want. Yeah. So we just need Bill to talk. <laughs> I wish, yeah, I wish he would just come out and say, look, Mora wasn't, he, he could probably put so many of these rumors to rest based on what he likely knew. Then again, even if he did, half the people probably wouldn't believe him. Yeah. So I think that is essentially it for Mora's case. Um, as we mentioned, this is kind of just a general overview. There are, is a lot of information. If you want to read more about Butch, even about Faith Westman who made the call, there's tons and tons of information online. And But I just feel like it's so important to note that no, no one has been named a suspect. So it's you have to be careful when discussing the people who may be involved. Yeah. All right, so that's really it for Mora's story and – like we said, there's tons of theories that you could go into. There's tons of in-depth things and podcasts that you could go into. But that's pretty much like the main facts of the story and then like the main biggest theories. So let us know what you guys think and follow us on Instagram, True Crime Society. Um, our personal accounts, mine is Steph Sum underscore, Olivia's TCS Olivia. You can follow us there and see what we're up to. Um, rate and review and share the podcast. Please give us a nice review because sometimes we get some mean ones that hurt my feelings. <laughs> and it makes me feel better when they get buried by nice comments. <laughs> share the podcast it's really great when you guys put them in your instagram stories because then it helps us spread the word about the podcast and i think that's really it all the usual stuff um thanks for listening peace out see ya stay safe I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs>